great to be with you again. And it's just so amazing going through the songs as I was standing there listening to them and just thinking about how, you know, usually when we we come in and we speak to the worship team and I might suggest one song, which I have, you know, I'll suggest one song that I'd like us to sing and but the rest they pick in that, you know, and and it's just the way amazing how God works and brings everything together. Because as you'll see today, as we go through Psalm 72, that you'll, you'll just see from the songs that we've sung how it all just links into each other. It's just amazing. But we, we have been having a great time going through the Psalms together over the last week, weeks, uh, start, starting in Psalm 1. Then uh, we looked at Psalm 24. Then we uh, had a great teaching from Rob last week with Psalm 42 and 43. And this week, as I've said, we'll be looking at Psalm 72. So we've discovered that the Psalms are Hebrew songs, yeah? And that it is a book of poetry. The Psalms can be Psalms of praise, Psalms of wisdom, Psalms of lament, and Psalms of thanksgiving. And also Psalms of royalty or kingship. And that's what Psalm 72 falls into. And it is all about the glory and universality of the Messiah's reign. That was the title in my Bible. You might have a similar title there in yours. Okay. I also believe, though, like many others, that this psalm is actually quite prophetic. And Warren Wiersbe actually quotes, The psalm is quoted nowhere in the New Testament as referring to Jesus, but certainly it describes the elements that will make up the promised kingdom when Jesus returns, as we'll see today. So when we, when we look at the, who the author is of this psalm, your Bible might say something like mine, that it is a psalm of Solomon. Yeah. And he is also connected to Psalm 127. Now, when the inscription is translated of Solomon, then he would have been the author and wrote of it himself in the third person. Interestingly, though, when you look at verse 20 of the psalm, it says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So why is that? Many scholars believe, as Charles Spurgeon quotes, with some diffidence, we suggest that the spirit and the matter of the psalm are David's, but he was too near his end to pen his own words or cast them into form. So Solomon, therefore, caught his dying father's song fashioned it into goodly verse, and without robbing his father, made the psalm his own. It is with, we conjecture, the, the prayer of David, but the psalm of Solomon. It's quite interesting, that, and I, and I think it really fits well. So verse 20, though, also brings an end to the, uh, the second book of the Psalms. I don't know if you noticed this, like five books in the Psalms. And the second book of the Psalms were predominantly written by David. Most of them were David's. Hence why it says these are the end of the prayers of David, the son of Jesse. So that's the introduction to the psalm and the author and that. So we're going to look at it. So let's read the psalm together. So we'll read through. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people he will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish, an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. 
Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the Isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yea, all the kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall, shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and in him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and the needy. He will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence. And precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live. And the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually. And daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon. And those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. And men will be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of the son of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is truth. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that as I speak today, through your Holy Spirit, I will speak the truth. Let my words be encouraging, uplifting, building, edifying. And whatever message you need to speak to people, let it work through these words I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Now, when we look at this wonderful psalm, it can, I think it can be divided into five parts. So the first part we're going to look at is from verses 1 to 7. And it talks about, as, Sturgeon, as Spurgeon puts it, a glowing description of the reign of Messiah as righteous. Now, when we look at the, these verses initially, we can look at the direct context and see that this as a prayer that David might have prayed for Solomon... So if we read there, it says, you know, give your king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. So David would have prayed that for towards Solomon, yeah? Let him judge your people with righteousness, your poor with justice. And Solomon himself might have prayed this, you know, as he was coming to be king, you know, after his father David. And we're going to read about that. I think it's very similar to what Solomon asked of the Lord in one king. So if, can you all turn in your Bibles to one king? So you want to go left? From the Psalms. We will be turning a bit back and forth today to a few scriptures. So if we go left to uh, one Psalms, uh, one King, sorry, and chapter three. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to read from verse uh, four down to um, verse 15. She so says, now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne. As it is this day, now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. 
and your, your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall be not, not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants." So when we look at this, you know, this initial meeting with Solomon and that with God and what he asked for, and God gave him wisdom. He said, there'd be none like you. You'd be the wisest among all the kings. And you can see how then this prayer, you know, give your king your judgments, O God, your righteousness. You can see Solomon might have prayed this as well to God. But there's a sense that when we look at these verses, that there's, there's something more than just an earthly king here. Yeah, when we look at these, you know, when you go on to read it, it says, you know, they shall fear you as long as the sun and the moon endure throughout all generations. That's interesting that, you know, but this is about someone who is more righteous than David and Solomon. And that's King Jesus. This is about King Jesus. Because <laughs> who else is able to rule over the nations better than him? In Isaiah 9 verse 7, it says... Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And Isaiah 11, verse 4 to 5, we read, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and, he, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. That's Jesus they're talking about. And doesn't it sound similar to what we've read in these first seven verses? I hope you can see that Jesus is the king of righteousness. And even though Solomon was a righteous king with great wisdom, he had his faults like all humans. He even turned away from the Lord at one point in his life. And his reign was not forever. Then we look at verse 3. We see, that it's, we see the mention of mountains bringing peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. Now, there is a natural, literal explanation here in that when the king reigns with righteousness, that all the land, including the hills and the mountains and everything around it, will bring peace. Yeah? But I think there's another imagery here that we need to look at. And that these mountains and little hills can actually represent governments, major governments, local governments. Isaiah actually used this term many times in his prophecies referring to these things. And it was also, you use, you use the term high hills we see sometimes. That also could refer to 
false religions as we this is actually mentioned in 1 kings 14 23 and it says for they also built for themselves high places or places for pagan worship sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree there they were sacrificing things to the false gods and this was israel they were talking about here in kings I think it also fits in with what we read of just before in Isaiah 9 of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. You see the governments, local governments, big governments, those in charge, the, the religious systems. Jesus is going to be in charge of all of them. We read in verse 4 of how the king will bring justice to the poor and the children of the needy and breaking priests the oppressor. Now, Solomon, as king, was wise, and he did look out for the poor and needy in Israel. And we can all probably recall the story of his great wisdom when the two harlots came to him and said, well, there's this child and it's mine. And they argued over the child who was alive. And Solomon used his great wisdom to decide who was the real mother. You know, I don't know if you've all read that story. And Apart from that, Israel and Judea had a very great time of peace and prosperity under, under King Solomon. But it was not forever. He fell away, as we've heard. There was times where he, he put needless taxes on the people and he punished the people at times as well. But who has promised an eternal peace for the poor and justice for the needy? None other than our Lord Jesus. We've already read in Isaiah 11 how Jesus will judge the poor with righteousness and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. But Jesus himself, he promised this himself when he came to earth. In Matthew 5, verses 3 and 5, we read, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In Matthew 9, we can read of how Jesus' compassion, as he had for the weary and the sick, he said he went round and he saw the sick and he had compassion upon them. And he looked, he had such compassion for the poor, the needy, the weak in this world. Looking at verses 5 to 7 then of the psalm, it talks about the longevity or the, how long, that's a big word, I know, I can't even say it properly, <laughs> of the reign of the king. We see that it talks about fearing the king as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. And in his days, the, right the righteous shall flourish and abundance in peace until the moon is no more. Now, we already know that Solomon brought peace to Israel some of his time as king. He had treaties with other nations. He had his wisdom. He even married many of the king's daughters so that he would have peace. You know, whereas David had had wars with a lot of the nations. But this did not last, and he was not feared as king throughout all generations. We know, though, there is a king who will rule as long as the earth in its present state with its sun and moon are intact, and that is Jesus. Again, there is the mention of peace and righteousness being the ruler's factors of his reign as king. Does that sound familiar, peace and righteousness? Let's uh, see if we can jog your memory a bit. And uh, Kevin said we were actually having a break from Hebrews. We're not. <laughs> we recently went through Hebrews 7 with Pastor Kevin, and we talked about the great priest Melchizedek, which in Hebrews 7, verse 1 to 2 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all. 
first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. We go a bit further in the chapter to verses 14 to 17 to read, for it is evident that our Lord rose arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. I think that's just so amazing how God has as we've said, you know, we're having a break from Hebrews, but even through the Psalms, we, we still are led back to that great book of Hebrews, you know. He reminds us of that. Because why? The entire Bible is about Jesus. And even though we are talking about, in the Psalms, earthly rulers, issues of life, it ultimately shows one thing, though. Jesus is better. <laughs> So, looking at verse 6, it's quite interesting that he mentions that he shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing. Now, I'm not sure if mowing the grass was something that Solomon was told to do by his father, you know, um, like we might get our kids to do today. So, you kids who are here, chores are in the Bible. No, I don't think that's what it means. <laughs> I think the picture here, though, is, is if you imagine us as children of God, been mown down by the troubles of this world. And it is Jesus who restores us with his living waters. Spurgeon puts it so lovely as he says, My soul, how well is it for thee to be brought low, and to be even as the meadows eaten bare and trodden down by cattle. For then to thee shall the Lord have respect. He shall remember thy misery, and with his own most precious love restore thee to more than thy former glory. Each crystal drop of rain tells of heavenly mercy, which forgets not the parched plains. Jesus is all grace, all that he does is love, and his presence among men is joy. We need to preach him more, for no shower can so refresh the nations. I think that's an amazing explanation when you think of that mowing and the rain. And Now, when I was reading this psalm a few times, it really got me thinking about when this period of time is, when Jesus will reign that they're talking about here in the psalm over the earth for as we know right now as we live satan is still the ruler of this world you know and when we think of eternity you know we we, we went through revelation we looked at the new earth the new city when we think of eternity with our heavenly father that is a time after this earth has been destroyed because there's a new heaven and a new earth so when does this reign of jesus occur i really believe it's referring to the millennial kingdom you see, when we're in heaven with Jesus forever, there's going to be no more sin, no more need for judgment. Yet here in this psalm, we read, as we've read in Isaiah earlier, of the king ruling with righteousness, of looking after the poor, saving the children of the needy. So how does this relate to millennial kingdom? Now, I want us to turn to Revelation. So we're going all the way back to the, the last book in your Bible and from chapter 20. And we're going to read from verses 1 to 10. And it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, 
who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast of his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And the fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Isn't that amazing scripture there? Now, I know there is some division in the church as to whether the thousand-year reign of Christ is an actual thousand years or is it a symbolic or a spiritual thing. Now, when I've just read there, how many times did we see a thousand years? You know, when Jesus used to preach in the New Testament and he'd say, truly, truly, it was because he was saying, this is true. That's why he said, truly, truly. I think John mentioned the thousand years almost five times to say, it's a real thousand years. <laughs> but anyway, I'm not here to judge anybody and we all have our beliefs and it's one of those things that you know you just have to work through and decide for yourself but i think scripture speaks for itself here but i as we've learned from many great teachers such as pastor kevin pastor tommy fretwell and for those who even attended this year in oxford amir safati yeah the best way to interpret prophecy is literally and not spiritually you know you think of all these prophecies. Think how many prophecies there were in the Old Testament regarding Jesus' first coming. Yeah? And it talked about him being born in Bethlehem, dying, raising from the dead. Imagine those were all spiritual and not real. That it was a type of Bethlehem or it wasn't, you know. If you, then, then our salvation wouldn't be guaranteed. Those were real prophecies. They were treated literally. And even the prophecies relating to the end times, the millennial reign, which in the Old Testament and New Testament, they are real. One other thing, though, I'd like to note, though, it's quite interesting because you think Satan's been bound up for a thousand years and he's no longer able to deceive the nations. So why does Jesus have to rule with an iron rod and judge with righteousness? We have to remember that there are three things that separate us from God. We've talked about these things before. Satan, the worldly system around us, and our own hearts and the flesh. Yeah? As Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's this. That's why we still need judgment at that time. So only Satan is removed. So you've only taken one element out. So Jesus still needs to rule with an iron rod. 
But do not fear, for those of you who have Christ as your saviour will already be renewed in your new sinless bodies, reigning with him at that time. Now, I could go on and talk so much regarding the millennial kingdom and the reign of Jesus, but I'm not going to because, you know, there's other things to talk about. But if you want more information, please read this great book, you know, by Amir Safati and um, John uh, Rick Young. It's, um, it links up to a video that he's done and that, you know, speak past, you know, speak to people. Speak to Tommy Fretwell. He'll talk all about it, about the rain, if you want more on, on, on that subject. Now, I know I've spent some time on the first seven verses of this psalm, and there are like 20 verses. I'm, I'm not spending as much time going forward. Because the reason is, I believe that the first seven verses and what we spoke about, this is the main message of this psalm. It's about Jesus' reign. It's about the millennial kingdom. And even though we're going to move a bit quicker through the rest of the psalm, it still talks about Jesus' reign on here on earth. So the second part of the psalm is verses 8 to 11, and this shows the universality of Jesus' reign. You see, even though David and Solomon ruled over great nations, none of their kingdoms stretched as far as is described here in these verses. It talks about pretty much being the whole earth. You see, from sea to sea and the ends of the earth in verse 8. Yeah? We also read in verse 9 and 10 of those who dwell in the wilderness and his enemies bowing before him and licking the dust. You get this image of them laying prostrate on the ground that they would actually be licking the dust, you know, before him. This is actually in the Old Testament. We read of this event in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 16 to 18 and it says and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king the lord of hosts and to keep the feast of the tabernacles and it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king the lord of hosts on them there will be no rain you see, there's going to be people in that time who are coming to worship Jesus, who were against Israel during, you know, during the tribulation period, who were against God. But now they will have to come. They will have to worship him because Jesus is ruling with an iron rod. And they will have to lay flat down, licking the dust before him. When I look at these verses, though, I think there's even a case that Jesus even though he hasn't come yet as a second coming, he still reigns as king over everything. We know that. He sits at the right hand of the Father on his heavenly throne, reigning. I don't know if any of you know of uh, Isaac Watts. He was a pastor from the 17th century, and he wrote many hymns, some we sing today. Joy to the world, when I survey the wondrous cross. Yeah. He also wrote a hymn called Jesus Shall Reign, based upon Psalm 72. This hymn was actually known as the first missionary hymn. Scott Hubbard writes an article in it, and I'm going to summarize here, but basically on Pentecost Sunday, 1862, as Western eyes watched civil war rip through America, an event just as momentous unfolded half a world away. Hidden from every headline, some 5,000 men and women, many of them former cannibals, gathered on a South Pacific island to worship Jesus Christ. Almost a century before the modern missionary movement, before William Carey sailed to India, 
and Adoniram Judson to Burma and Hudson Taylor to China and the Methodist missionaries to Tonga, the mission Isaac, the minister, sorry, Isaac Watts penned a hymn of Christ's coming reign, a reign that would reach islands far beyond Britain and gather tongues far beyond even English. Psalm 72 comes from Solomon's hand, written in the first place as a tribute to the royal son. Clearly, however, this psalm speaks of a king greater than Solomon, even at the height of his strength. The royal son's kingdom is boundaryless to the ends of the earth and timeless endure forever. And a boundaryless, timeless kingdom call for an omnipotent, eternal king. So even when we look round us at the world we live in with all its evil and sin, we still see King Jesus reigning on high, still see him transforming lives from all parts of the world. Part three of the psalm is from verses 12 to 14. And this is actually regarding the benefits of Jesus' reign. We see a repeat of what we've already read in verse four and have looked at when Jesus will reign here on the earth in his kingdom, that he will judge the poor and needy with righteousness and peace. In the early church, James, the half-brother of Jesus, spoke of the poor and needy often in his book and how they would be redeemed and how the oppressors will be judged. Let us turn together to James. It's probably about three books before Revelation. Just no, four. Just before he... Let me just get it. Just after Hebrews. It's the book just after Hebrews. There you go. Because you've all got bookmarks in your Hebrews keeping place, ready to go back on you. <laughs> so... Hebrews chapter 5, and I'm going to read from verse 1 to 8. James. See, I, I, just, want to, I just want to read Hebrews. <laughs> you to go back to Hebrews. <laughs> James chapter 5, verse 1 to 8. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. And their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, mowing again, which kept you back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury, and you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Verse 7 and 8, though. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And you, we see how the wicked and rich oppressors. Now, I'm not, this is not generalizing all rich people, but this is, you know, the, the world around us, the rich, a lot of them are wicked and they, they abuse their workers, you know, that's how they get rich. And they'll be judged, you know. And those who are poor and needy, it says they will be uplifted. Wait upon the Lord. He will shower you like rain. He will establish your hearts because he will come. And then what will happen? We will reign with him for those thousand years. Now, when I was writing this and 
I read, and then it was funny, I was just thinking about this and I actually added a few notes this morning, but you know, you know, as a family, I've been going through some trials, you know, some hard trials at times and we go through these things. And if you like me at times feel poor or weak, cause I do, there are times when I feel poor in spirit, you know, and, but know this, as we wait for the day of the Lord to happen, he will strengthen our hearts. He will shower us with rain to refresh us. And one day soon, we will reign with Jesus over this earth for glory, for his glory. Isn't that amazing? In verse 14, we see the redemption of those who face violence and persecution or martyrdom for Jesus' sake. This again confirms what we read earlier in Revelation 20 of those who were beheaded for his name's sake. They will be redeemed. They will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now, part four of this psalm is verse 15 to 17, and it talks of the prosperity of the coming kingdom. We read first in verse 15 of the fact that he shall live forever. It sort of reminds us, doesn't it, of the shout that nations would give to their kings and leaders. Long live the king. Yeah. Yeah. Yet we don't need to shout this for Jesus, for we know he is our eternal king. As Jesus himself proclaimed to John in Revelation 1 verse 8, Haley even said it, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So what do we shout instead? Long live the king. Jesus reigns forever and ever. Yes? And we see this confirmed in verse 17 of the psalm. It says, his name shall endure forever. Interestingly enough, it says there, it it, it makes a note of offering prayers. Yeah, that prayers will be made for him continually. Now, when we pray as groups or individuals and we come before the Lord and we pray to Jesus, we don't always pray for Jesus, do we? We might pray for others and we might pray for ourselves and you know, we do pray that the Lord's will be done, but we tend not to pray for Jesus. So interestingly, it says to pray for him. How would we pray for Jesus? As a church, who are we? The body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. So whenever you pray for another believer, you are praying for his body. Isn't that interesting? I think also, though, it is a meaning that it means to pr- pray through him as well. You know, that's what it means. You pray through. Once we get to the kingdom, they will be praying and worshipping him daily, though. <laughs> now, in verse 15 and 16, we see of the prosperity of the reign of Christ. The gold of Sheba will be given to him. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. I think this is a fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. It says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in all the families of the earth, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Micah, Zechariah, they all spoke of this kingdom to come and it will be fulfilled. 
Now, yes, these promises are about Israel. This is going to happen in Israel. The city will still be Jerusalem. This is about the nation of Israel being restored with Jesus. But we talked to, uh, when I spoke to you about Psalm 24, what did I say to you? We've been taught that we've been grafted into those promises as well. So we're part of those promises as Gentiles, as believers in Christ. The final part of this psalm is verse 18 and 19. And this is actually a doxology or a benediction. And it does not actually form part of the psalm proper. And there is similar verses at the end of Psalm 41, which ends the first book of the Psalms. And a similar verse at the end of Psalm 89, which ends the third book of the Psalms. They all end on these doxologies. But what a glorious way to end. Blessed be his glorious name forever and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. I think we're going to sing that as our closing song as well. But just before we end, I want to read that wonderful hymn I mentioned to you, Jesus Reigns by Isaac Watts. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till suns shall rise and set no more. To him shall endless prayer be made and praises throng to crown his head. His name like sweet perfume shall rise with every morning sacrifice. People and realms of every tongue dwell on his love and sweetest song. And infant voices shall proclaim their early blessings on his name. Blessings abound wherever he reigns. The prisoners leap to loose their chains. The weary find eternal rest. And all the sons of want are blessed. Let every creature rise and bring the highest honors to the, our king. Angels descend with songs again. And earth repeat the loud amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, oh, our Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you, Father God, that you have given us Jesus, who now sits at your right hand and reigns with you. But yet one day we know, Lord Jesus, you will return. You will return for your church, and then you will return to this earth to reign on this earth with an iron rod at first. But we know that you will be a king of righteousness and the king of peace. And we will not have anything that we want because we will have you. We will no more be needy. We will no more be poor. And I thank you, Lord, that anybody who's sitting here today might think, well, I don't have that assurance. I don't have that security in my heart. I pray, Lord, that you will just speak to them and that they will just come before you in prayer, in repentance, to know that you forgive us our sins and that you bring us into your kingdom through the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that we can just worship you and praise you and know that the whole earth is filled with your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.